Alrighty, if you would turn your Bibles to Psalm 47. Oh, clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout to God with a voice of triumph. For the Lord Most High is awesome. He is a great king over all the earth. He will subdue the peoples under us and the nations under our feet. He will choose our inheritance for us, the excellence of Jacob, whom he loves. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God. Sing praises. Sing praises to our king. Sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth. Sing praises with understanding. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people have gathered together, the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. Okay, um, me and I are going to get rereading Psalm 99. The Lord reigns, let the people tremble. He dwells between the cherubim. Let the earth be moved. The Lord is great in Zion. He is high above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. He is holy. The king's strength also loves justice. You have established equity and have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. He is holy. Moses and Aaron his priests, were his priests, and Samuel was among those who called upon his name. They called upon the Lord, and he answered them. He spoke to them in the cloudy pillar. They kept his testimonies in the ordinances he gave them. You answered them, O Lord our God. You were to them God who forgives, though you took vengeance on their deeds. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill, for the Lord our God is holy. You may be seated. Before we dive into this no small subject matter of God this morning, uh, will you pray with me? Our Father in heaven, it's to you that we pray. You are the creator. You are the judge and ruler over all the nations. You are the king of kings and always make impartial judgments. What you say, you always do. You are a God who is faithful, a God we can trust, a God who never fails. We thank you for being our loving, merciful, heavenly Father. It's in the name of your Son, our Savior, we pray these things. Amen. Over the course of the next eight weeks, we're going to be spending our time hammering home the same initial question. And that initial question is going to go something like this. What does God have to say, dot, dot, dot. What does God have to say as we begin this series? By the way, this is not a separate series from the one we've talked about the last six weeks. I think it's important to say that too. What we covered the last six weeks is coupling with what we're going to be talking about over these next eight weeks. 
the first six weeks, we really talked a lot about what God expects and desires of his church. It's what we're to be about, right? Over the course of these next eight weeks, I believe it's also important that, that God would be able to tell us and communicate with us through his word who he is, how he operates according to the truth of his word. I think it's important that everyone in the church knows what we believe and knows why we believe it to be true. So over these next eight weeks, we're going to talk about some big doctrine is the fancy word, teachings from Scripture that really are pegs and markers for the church of Jesus Christ. These are things that we got to be very clear on knowing what we believe in these arenas. And the first three arenas we're going to talk about, God, Jesus, the Holy Spirit. That might seem really basic and fundamental, but you know what, church? There are a lot of folks today who profess the name of Jesus, who have a wrong understanding of who God is. They have a wrong understanding of who Jesus Christ is. They have a wrong understanding of the Holy Spirit. We need to be very clear on these things. And so that's where we're going over these next several weeks. We're going to build on that question, what does God have to say? And so as we look at today, we can continue the title, what does God have to say about God? What's God have to say about God? Now, perhaps it's an interesting thought to consider what God has to say about himself. You know, it's interesting if if each of us were asked to speak on our thoughts about ourselves. Our answers would more than likely sound a bit overinflated. We tend to think more highly of ourselves than we ought, don't we? But what about God? What does he have to say about himself? And you might be thinking, isn't what he has to say about himself, isn't that a bit skewed? Isn't he a little biased? Can he really be trusted with what he says about himself? Who does he say he is? Evan and I were going through the Ten Commandments and we're being accountable one to another to learn the Ten Commandments. God spoke all these words in Exodus chapter 20 through Moses and he identifies right out of the gate who he is. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. I am the Lord your God. Remember when he's he's with Moses early on and Moses is making up all those excuses. Well, what if they don't believe me? What if they don't think? Remember who he says to identify? Tell them I am sent you. God. I am the Lord your God. If he is who he says he is, What are the implications for us? 
You know, one of the things that we discover as we come to know God is this. We'll see ourselves in a much different light. Sort of like Peter. Remember when he's on the boat and, and, and he's like, okay, God, um, because you said so, we'll throw the nets over. Loads of fish. Followed up by a few verses later, Peter's falling down on his knees before Jesus in the boat. Peter understood in that moment, thus his need to worship. <laughs> he understood the great chasm, the great disparity between God, the God-man in the boat, Jesus, and himself. And friends, I believe that when we come to know the God of the scriptures, we also then come to know a lot about ourselves, our frailties, our weaknesses, but our beloved position being in Christ. We'll see ourselves in a much different light because he's God, we're not. He's the potter, we are the what? Clay. Tozer had this idea in his writing of, of God and it had this aspect of what we think about God is the most driving, penetrating question that we can settle. What we think about God. And so as I was thinking about this subject of God, where do you begin when you set out to teach and preach on the subject of God? God, theos, Right? Theos, we have theology, theology, the study of God, right? From Genesis to Revelation in this Bible, we are learning about God, about who he is, about how he operates, about his will, about his nature, about his character, about his Trinitarian presence. One God, yet God in three distinct persons, right? Isn't that what the Bible teaches? God the Father, Jesus the Son, and the Holy Spirit. One God, yet he manifests himself in three persons. So we ask the question, why a study on God? Because I believe knowing God rightly is the key to everything in this life and the life to come. Tony Evans writes in his book, Our Awesome God, love the title, Our Awesome God. He says, the study of the knowledge of God is the most important pursuit in life. Absolutely nothing is more important. Knowing God. Let me ask you, does the pursuit of knowing God wake you up in the morning? Does it get you going in your day, knowing God? Does the pursuit of knowing God drive you on to know him even more? Does the pursuit of knowing God cause you to live any differently than your next door neighbor? What difference could knowing God possibly make? Some might ask. While there are many scriptures that perhaps we could turn to, Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24 is a good place to turn. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man glory, or some of your translations boast, let not the wise man 
glory in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. But let him who glories, let him who boasts, boast in this. Listen, that he understands and knows me. That I am the Lord. Exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. For in these I delight, says the Lord. You see, when boasting or glorying gets brought up, it usually has a connect point to something we've done. Something we've accomplished. Something we want others to know about. We sing... Glory to his name, but our lives oftentimes reflect glory to my name. Look at me. God says to Jeremiah, you want something to boast about? Boast that you know me. That's what I delight in, that you know me. That you understand me. Listen, if that's what he delights in, do you think he's going to make it so you can't know him? That you can't understand him at some level? Yes, we have a difference, no doubt. There's, there's infinite holy God and there's finite thinking man. There are some things we don't know about him. But yet the Bible seems to indicate that we know enough about him to be able to walk with him and have a relationship with him. Now we see dimly. There's going to be a day when we're going to see it all. We're going to see him as he is. Do we think like this at all from what Jeremiah says? Boasting that we know the Lord? Listen, a study on God, knowing God... I like what what Evan says. He goes on, he says about this knowing God. He says, knowing God is not an awareness of God. Knowing God is not information about God. We're not data collectors, but we're disciples of the king. And knowing God is not religion. He, He writes, he says, to know God involves more than awareness, more than information, more than a religious experience. To know God is to have him rub off on you. Think about that for a moment. To enter into relationship with God so that who he is influences who you are. One of the great tragedies today is that you can go to church, you can be aware of God, you can go to church and have information about God, and if your church has a great choir, he says, you can even feel God or experience God. But you can leave church with him never having rubbed off on you. End quote. Has God rubbed off on you? Before you answer that question with pomp and splendor of your own. Perhaps it's uh, significant to turn to your brother or sister sitting next to you. Or uh, your spouse who may be seated next to you. Perhaps it would be a good way 
to truly get an answer to the question? Two things need to happen in that exercise. First of all, the, there needs to be an assumption that the person who is asking really wants to know the answer to the question. So we need to be honest. Has God rubbed off on them? If they were to ask you that question, what would you say? Which is greater in their life? A life pattern of God present and at work in his life or a life pattern of the world present and at work in him? I encourage you to answer the question as we ought to. Remember the Bible also says that we are to speak to one another in love with the truth, right? And we are, in Ephesians 4, it, it gives us the why we're to speak this way. Because we are part of the body. The bo- this is the way the body is to communicate. In love. Truthing in love. Ephesians 4. But if you're on the receiving end, let's talk about that. You are on the receiving end of that question. Is God rubbing off on me? If you're on the receiving end of hearing what your sibling or spouse has to say, you need to have ears to hear. Have you considered that ignoring the question or bypassing your spouse's answer may be hindering your marriage relationship? Your spouse is committed to the marriage. She's not going anywhere, but men... Some of your spouses have resigned, they've resigned themselves to a place that this is as good as he's going to get. Ouch. Are you settling for mediocrity or striving to grow in godliness? Anyone interested anymore in being an imitator of God? See, a study of God ought to produce people here on earth who look as if God has rubbed off on them. A desire and fervency to know God, to intimately know who God is, to have him rub off on you as you interact with others, as you carry out your job, as you speak to your wife and children. How might your life look differently If you had a little more God rub off on you. May it not be said of us here at Hope in Christ this year that we came and occupied a chair but never had any God rub off on us. Next week, in fact, when you come walking in, it's a little assignment. Lord willing, this is a little prod for us all to move in a godly direction. When you come walking in next week, I hope that you notice a change in that person that's seated in front of you or behind you. I hope that you can tell that God's rubbed off on them in this past week. Some of you come in here and your conversations are solely of the world. I want you to think about this for a moment. You talk of nothing but the world. News, weather, sports, politics easy to tell what's rubbed off on you in this past week. What do you spend your time talking about? You come in having watched perhaps your favorite movie again. Do you think 
that God is impressed with how you can quote the lines and in fact say the lines just as the actor or actresses say the lines in the movie and that God is somehow impressed with that. Don't you know that the love of the Father is not in you when you are so busy loving the world? And your love, listen, your love for the world shows up in your life. It's rubbing off. Your speech reveals it. Your body language reveals it. Your attire reveals it, perhaps. Your promptness in here on a Sunday to Sunday at least in part reveals it. Let's get grounded in the God of the universe and let's make knowing him the primary. You know, it's hard to sing a song like we sang this morning, Oh, Worship the King, when all week long we've been worshiping other gods. Huh? Or difficult to sing, Be Exalted, Oh God, when the previous six days of the week, we've been exalting ourselves, our stuff, our prized possessions, our personal belongings. Let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me. Evan says, if we knew God, we would understand that we have the ability to get up in the morning, go to work and spend money only because God is God. Deuteronomy 8.18 says the very same thing. You shall remember the Lord your God, the Bible says, for it's he who gives you the power, he who gives you the ability to get or produce wealth. He gives you that opportunity. One chapter earlier, Deuteronomy 7 says this, for you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples of the face of the earth. Now listen, he says, the Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you were more in number than any other people. For you were the least of all peoples. But because the Lord loves you, And because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand, redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore, know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. And he repays those who hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with him who hates him. He will repay him face to face. Have you ever wondered why God does the things that he does in your life? Anybody ever wonder that? Why, why, why is he doing this? It's not, and sometimes we think those thoughts when something really good happens in our life. Why would God Why is he doing this? This, Wow, this is amazing. It's not because you're the smartest, not because you're the richest or the prettiest or the most talented or the most well-educated or the one with the most toys. It's not it. He does what he does when he wants to do it. He does it exactly how he'd like to do it. And he always knows why. We're good at asking why, aren't we? We want to know why things happen. 
God always knows the why. And see, this is, this is so important for us because if we understand and know that God has the why, he also, by the way, has the how. If we know that he is in control of the why, are we content with that? Knowing that the why is under his control. He knows your frame. He knows your weaknesses. He knows your blind spots. He created you. He knit you together, the Bible says, in your mother's womb. You are fearfully and wonderfully made by the handiwork of God himself. Isn't that good news? In the beginning, God, what? What did he do? Created. In the beginning, God created. God has existed from all eternity. He is the everlasting God. He's not a created being. And the Bible begins making a splash statement about God. In the beginning, God created. God is on the scene before the created world comes into being. In fact, all things that were made in days one through six have their being in whom? In God. God spoke, it came to be, God said it's good, right? That's the pattern. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, most of us here can recite Genesis 1, verse 1. But I wonder how many of us really believe it to be true. God created the world, speaking it into existence. Listen, let's be real clear here. No big bang. You heard that? Big bang? Big bang. No big bang here. God created. No evolutionary, primordial ooze sitting in a pond over millions and zillions of years. No. The existence for this world that you and me live in has everything to do with the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's grounded on what God did in the beginning. He created. Now why is that so important to know that God created the world? Well, when you believe that God created the heavens and the earth and that your life here has everything to do with God placing you here, you start to live like a steward and not like an owner. God's the one who owns all things, doesn't he? Psalm 50 tells us that. You didn't put those stars in place. You didn't set the boundaries for the waters and the ocean. You didn't coordinate the patterns and the sequences for all the animal life and all the fish life and all the plant life. Reminds me a lot of the question that God asked Job, huh? Who are you, Job? Where were you when I planned and plotted out this world? God did all that. Oh, let's remember, too, that God is spirit, right? He's spirit. He does not have a body like man. God is the only 
true God. He is holy. He's just. He's eternal in his being. He's unchangeable. He's unshakable. He's immortal, invisible, we sing about, right? Immortal, invisible. He's mighty in power. He's all-knowing. He's all-wise. He's everywhere present. In the book, What is God Really Like? Francis Chan writes a chapter It's titled, God is Strong. And in there he talks about how God sets the parameters of this life. And one of his favorite quotes from a teacher, an old-time preacher that probably many of you have heard from, J. Vernon McGee, he quotes in this chapter. And J. Vernon McGee says, this is God's universe. And God does things his way. You may have a better way, but you don't have a universe. I love it. True. Francis Chan goes on and writes, he says, maybe you think it's not fair that God created hell, a place of punishment. Maybe you think he shouldn't have made it eternal. Maybe you've thought, God, you can't give me desires and then tell me not to do those things. He says, we all have different ideas of what God ought to do. You think you know what you'd do if you were God. And he goes back to what McGee says. He says, great, when you get a universe, do it your way. But for now, this is God's universe and no one holds back his hand. Amen. The psalmist says it this way in Psalm 115, verse three, our God is in heaven. He does whatever he pleases. Think about that. He does whatever he pleases. Is this the God that you believe in? Is this the God that you serve and know? Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 3, verse 29, makes this statement and declaration. Therefore, I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut in pieces, and their houses shall be made an ash heap. Because, here's why. This is what Nebuchadnezzar came to understand when he saw the power of God at work. There is no other God who can deliver like this. Just one chapter later, remember when Nebuchadnezzar is humbled and his kingdom is restored. In Daniel chapter 4, 35, Nebuchadnezzar says, all the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing. He does, God that is, he does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain his hand or say to him, what have you done? Friends, that's a pagan king saying those words. God is the creator of all things. There's no other God like our God. No one can restrain the God of heaven. He does according to his will. He is God alone. When you know God, you come to see that he is our creator. But he's more than that. And time this morning won't allow us to speak of all he is. We could go on and on and on and on. I'm just going to give you two more things and we're going to be done. So he's our creator. God is our creator. Second thing I want us to get this morning is that God is our king. God is our king. God is our creator. God is our king, right? 
Psalm 95.3 says, For the Lord is the great God and the great King, the great King above all gods. Psalm 66, verse 7, He rules. That's, that's a kingly term. He rules by His power forever, everlasting God. Right? Psalm 47, verse 2, For the Lord Most High is awesome. He is a great King over all the earth. Terms like ruling and reigning and majesty and supremacy and authority and almighty and sovereign. These are words that describe our God. Knowing God is the king may not necessarily be argued among Christ's followers today. We intellectually sign off that God is king over all things. But I'm afraid that the church has, has disconnected God as the great king over the earth and God is the great king over my life. Think about that. I think we give intellectual assent and say, yes, yes, God is king over all the earth. But the way that we live, we disconnect. God is king over all the earth, of which I am a part of that, correct? We don't oftentimes see and recognize God is the king over my life. We aren't so quick, it seems, to acknowledge his kingship in our own lives. Listen, as king, he calls the shots. As subject of the king, we submit our will to his, and we walk as he's instructed us to walk. He's the king. You know, back in the day, to go against the wishes of the earthly king meant that you placed yourself at risk, Right? To fight against the king was a death warrant. To go against his rules and regulations established in the land meant that you were rebelling against the king himself. So consider God as our king, our ruler. The one who reigns, yes, over all the earth. But he reigns over you. And you, and you, and you. You, we just go on down. He reigns over all of you. Can we narrow the scope of God's kingship to your life, the lives inside your home, and the lives that currently make up this church for just a moment? How are you doing at living as though God were your king? Is this church operating under the authority of God, our King. See, fighting against God, our King, is rebelling against the one who made you. We just talked about him being a creator. Fighting against God, our King, is forsaking his way, his path, his laws, his commandments, his testimonies, all the stuff Psalm 119 talks about. Fighting against God, our King, making a pattern to live this way. Listen to what the psalmist says, Psalm 73, 27. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. And it was reminded of, of the passage in Samuel chapter 12, and Samuel speaking to the people. This is Saul's inaugural address, right? And he's, he's given to them, he's presenting to them this king that they so desperately wanted. I love Samuel 12, verse 12. Samuel says to the people, And when you saw the Nahash king of the Ammonites came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us. When the Lord your God was your king. 
when the Lord your God, Sam, this is a rebuke. Samuel is pointing out to the people. God was your king and you were crying out for someone else. You exchanged the kingship of God himself for the kingship of an earthly monarch. Oh, it reminds me of Romans 1, 21 and following. Although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God. They changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie. How could we think of exchanging the truth of God as king for the law. Why are we looking elsewhere for man to rescue us and deliver us? Have we forgotten who God is and all that he's done? You know, that's the first thing Moses tells the people of God in Exodus 20, is who God is. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. Oh, worship the king, all glorious above. God is our creator. God is our king. Let's look at one final identification marker of this God that we serve. God is our father. God is our creator. God is our king. God is our father. Luke chapter 11 Jesus says, when you pray, say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Jesus spends a great deal of time referencing God as his Father in the book of John. If we turn for just a moment to John chapter 5, you see this. Just read a a little excerpt to give you a flavor of this. John chapter 5. Starting in 19, Jesus says, Most assuredly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. For whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself does. And he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives life to them, even so the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one but has committed all judgment to the Son that all should honor the Son just as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. What we see here is a pattern for living through the Father. We see the love of the Father. We see life given through the Father. We see authority of the Father. We see honor is due, the Father. And I realize as I put this forward that God is our Father, that there are some here who have had challenging, hurtful, painful experiences in relationship in the past, perhaps currently, with your earthly Father. And this idea of God as our Father could be hard to receive. All you've known about your earthly father is attached to unpleasant memories and images of a man who was unloving. Maybe that's you this morning. But I want you to know that you have a loving, heavenly Father who desires to have a relationship with you through His Son, Jesus. 
John 14, 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me, Jesus says. So Jesus is the way to God, our Father. Same gospel, John chapter 6, verse 44, Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. God the Father is the way to the Son. The Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, church, are working together. One God manifested in the scriptures through three persons. God is our Father. And as Father, listen to this, this is so important. As Father, He desires relationship with His children. 1 John 3, 1, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called, what? Children of God. But this Father that we have is also an impartial Father. I love this about Him. You know, I was reminded as we've been reading through the 90-day journey, I was reminded of, uh, of a Father who chose... Time and again, and it seems like in a few generations, there were fathers who had their favorites. Right? You go back and read the book of Genesis, and you see a lot of it. Fathers who were partial to one of their children. Listen, we serve a heavenly father who is impartial. We have a heavenly father who has enough love for all of his people. And gives them his love. His love doesn't run out because he's got X amount of people. He, that's the thing about God. He's the source of love. Unending love. 1 Peter 1.17 says, And if you call on the Father who without partiality judges according to each one's work, conduct yourselves throughout the time of your stay here in fear. If you call on the Father, there's a way that you ought to be living, friends. In fear. Fear of the Lord. Well, he's not only desiring a relationship, but this father is also a loving father. I love this statement in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7. He says this in verses 9 through 11. What man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give good gifts? Things to those who ask. He's a loving father. But church, I would want you to know he's also a good father. James 1.17 says, every good and perfect gift. Every good and perfect gift is from above and comes down from the father of lights. With whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Studying the person of God reminds me of what John spoke near the end of his gospel, chapter 20, verse 20. And it says here, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. <laughs> I got to think how God has performed many other marvelous works. God has displayed many other character traits than the ones we mentioned this morning. He, he has an abundance of names in the scripture God functions in so many wonderful ways. And we touched on three descriptors of, of this God of the scriptures. 
Many other descriptors have, have not been mentioned this morning. We didn't exhaust the subject of God in the scriptures by any means. But I trust that this has been a good starting point for the church to nail down who God is and to walk with confidence knowing this God of heaven. There is nothing greater than knowing God and living your life for him. You know, Jesus, before he went to the cross, he's praying to the Father in John 17, verse 3. And he says, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. We'll speak more about Jesus in the week ahead. But here in John 17, 3, Jesus prays with recognition that knowing God, listen, knowing God equates to eternal life. God is our creator. In the beginning, God created, right? God is our king. Psalm 5 says, give heed to the voice of my cry, my king and my God. God is our Father, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. And so God is creator, we think about that. God is creator, we are his creation. And so the the call here this morning is live like he made you. Live in such a way that you reflect God's image, God's glory. God is king and we are his subjects, therefore... Let's walk as he's called us to walk. Obey him. Do what he says. And God is father and we are his beloved children. And so as we spend our days, he calls us into relationship. He's revealed himself to us and he desires that we know him, the only true God. And he's made it possible for us to know him through his son, Jesus Christ, through his Holy Spirit, who now abides within those who proclaim the name of Jesus. There's a chorus that speaks to this God. The words, to only a king of all kings will I bow my knee and sing, give my everything. To only my maker, my father, my savior, redeemer, rewarder, rebuilder, restorer. To only a God like you do I give my praise. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless, before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy, to God, our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for who you are. That you are a loving Father. You are a good father. You are an impartial father. You are a father who desires relationship with us here. You are a king, a great and mighty, awesome king. That you rule and reign not only over all the world. 
But Lord, help us to remember each day of our lives that you are reigning over us, that you are the king of our lives, that you are the king over this body of Christ. That, Lord, what you say we'll do. Where you call us, we'll go. As your subjects, may we walk in the way that you've called us to walk. Father, we thank you that you are our creator, that you made us, that you bought us, that you've saved us, that you know us better than anyone here on earth. You are a God who knows every heart. And Father, a recognition and an acknowledgement that you are creator God gives us great purpose here in this life. To know that just as you made all things in this world in the course of seven days, Lord, I pray that it would be a reminder to us that there's no problem too big for you. There's no trial too difficult for you. For Lord, you spoke these things and the world came to be. And a God who is that powerful, a God who is that mighty, who can do such a thing, Lord, I pray that it would bolster our faith and our confidence in who you are and what you will do. May this church be a church that stands fully upon the God of the scriptures, not a God of their own making, not a God of their own definition, but a God who is overall, a God who is a great king, a God who is a great father, and a God who is our great creator. Lord, thank you. Thank you for your goodness. We thank you for your word and pray in these next few weeks as we continue looking at your word about what you have to say. Oh, Lord, help us be attentive and give us ears to hear what you have to say. I pray this people would want to know what you have to say about these things, that we might walk rightly and live for you and give you glory and honor all our days. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.